As you're being seated, I want to say welcome to Ignite. Really glad you're here with us uh, this morning. It's good to be with the people of God, whether you're here uh, in person or joining us online. Uh, really good to be here uh, with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 69. We are working through the book of Psalms as a church this summer, not the entire thing, but we are looking at representative types, the main categories of Psalms uh, throughout the book. And we're focusing on that this summer together. Uh, We've talked about how the Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. Literally for 3,000 years, whether Jewish or Christian, uh, modern or ancient, God's people have prayed the Psalms because it's God's word for us, yes, but Psalms is unique in the Bible because it's mostly human words prayed to God. So our emotions can be engaged. We can understand the character of God, and it teaches us how to pray. We've been studying the different types of psalms this summer as a church. Uh, Thanksgiving psalms, Torah, God's law, uh, historical psalms, praise, royal, psalms of lament last week. But this week you need to know that there's a type of psalm called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms. And that's a pretty obscure word. we could call them this, uh, they are curse psalms, or they're judgment psalms. An impractation is a curse. It's a statement of judgment. It's heavy, it's weighty. Or you could look at it this way, uh, imprecatory psalms are not coffee mug psalms. You know what I'm saying? You, you go to the Christian bookstore, find a mug that says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Or uh, Philippians 4, I can do all things, through him who gives me strength, right? Um, The imprecatory psalms, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. It's not a coffee mug scripture. It's not a coffee mug scripture. They're cursed psalms. They're heavy, they're weighty. Here's a quick definition for note takers. Imprecatory psalms call on God to punish and judge the wicked. They call on God to punish and judge the wicked. C.S. Lewis, he was a 20th century uh, pastor theologian, and uh, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with with that. But C.S. Lewis comments on the imprecatory psalms, the cursed psalms, and he says this, what it's like reading them. He says, quote, the spirit of hatred which strikes us in the face is like the heat from a furnace mouth. Uh, He's right. The curses that are spoken against the wicked are really severe. Here are a few of them. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. That's Psalm 69. Or from Psalm 109. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg. Or we'll look at in a few moments from Psalm 69. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May their camp become desolate. May their names be erased from the book of the righteous. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, he goes on to say that Christians have two ways that we can deal with these Psalms. We're presented with two ways we can deal with these Psalms. We can leave them alone, or we can engage them as God's word. And I'll tell you this today, we will not leave them alone. Here's why. Because we fundamentally believe that all of God's word 
the dark parts and the light parts, the teaching of grace and the teaching of judgment, all of it is equally inspired as God's holy word. It's equally useful as God's word. It is for our good and his glory. We will not leave them alone. So we're going to engage them. We're going to address this morning uh, imprecatory psalms and the felt tension that they produce for followers of Jesus because they're there. If you've read through the psalms, you've read these. I want to equip you with how to read these and ultimately how Jesus fulfills these psalms. Here's the tension. You're maybe feeling a little bit now. You're like, this seems contrary to what Jesus taught. It's a tension. The tension is this. Jesus called us to love our enemies. Luke chapter 6, or the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he called us to love our enemies. He called us to pray for those who persecuted us. He calls us to bless and not to curse. But the imprecatory psalms, these curse psalms, seem to do the opposite of what Jesus taught and did. You have King David, you have these righteous God followers in the book of Psalms that are they're cursing their enemies. In addition, we've talked about how these, how these Psalms, the, the book of Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. It should be prayed, not just read and thought about, it should be prayed. But we have to ask, should Christians, can Christians, pray these curse Psalms, and should we? That's what we're going to address today. As you can tell, the subject matter isn't very light, uh, but we're going to engage it because it's God's word and it's useful for us and ultimately it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so here's our roadmap for our time together. If you're a note taker, you're gonna think you died and went to heaven. A lot of notes today, okay? Uh, roadmap for our time. I wanna give you five features or five principles for reading these Psalms. I wanna equip you to be able to read these on your own. Um, maybe even wanna equip you to defend these Psalms. Um, there might be skeptics or um, people that want to critique and criticize and devalue uh, the Bible, and they might appeal to these psalms. I want to equip you for that. Second, we're going to look at one imprecatory psalm in context, Psalm 69. That's a psalm of David. Open there in your Bibles. We'll be there in a moment. And then we're going to wrap up by looking at how Christians should view these imprecatory psalms. We're going to talk about, can we pray these? How does this relate to Jesus? Why are they here? Uh, that's what we're going to engage in our time together this morning. Pray for me. We have about 15, uh, 20 minutes left, so uh, a lot of ground to cover, and I have a lot to say. Uh, so with that being said, uh, five features, five principles for reading and engaging these psalms before we get into and look at Psalm 69. They'll be on the screen behind me as well. The first one is this. Uh, these imprecatory psalms are written in response to serious injustice. There's a context surrounding these. King David in Psalm 69, we'll look at this context in a moment, but um, he did not just wake up and say, you know what, I feel like calling down the wrath of God on the innocent and vulnerable around me. Look at, that's not the case. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Uh, these Psalms are written in response to serious evil, serious persecution, serious injustice. Maybe you can resonate with that. You look out into the world and you just feel this anger, call it righteous anger, call it frustration, call it pure rage, call it whatever you want, but you can't deny that you feel these things when you see injustice. And these psalms are written in response to a serious injustice. They teach us how to uh, pray. Second, these prayers are not prayers for personal revenge. You need to catch this. They're not prayers for personal 
revenge. Whether you were an Old Testament Israelite living under the law or whether you're a Christian today, Israelites and Christians alike are nowhere encouraged or permitted in God's word to seek personal revenge. Leviticus 19 is one of the 613 commandments or laws that the Jews would have lived under. And Leviticus 19 says, do not seek vengeance on your brothers, your people. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. Or Jesus, as he unpacks the law and its relevance for the Christian, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those that do evil against you. These are not prayers for personal revenge. Third, in precatory psalms, they're written as a call for God to act justly in the midst of injustice. You need to know that the character of God is just. God does not just act justly, but just is who God is. This is his character. This is what he does. And so when precatory psalms are written as a call for God to act justly, there's some injustice in the world and it's an appeal to the character of God. The psalmists, when they're praying these imprecatory curse psalms, they're saying, God, you are just. Look at this injustice and act according to your character. It's written as a call for God to act justly in the midst of injustice. There's a reason. Fourth feature, fourth principle. These are almost always directed at unfaithful believers, not unbelievers. These are almost always directed at unfaithful believers, not unbelievers. Okay, most of these psalms, we'll see this in Psalm 69 in a few moments, but most of these psalms, the overwhelming majority of them, are addressed at believers who profess one thing with their mouth, but act another way with their life. We call this hypocrisy. And I would say it's the worst kind of religion. Hypocrisy. Like you're wearing a, a mask around some people and you're your true self around other people. You ever heard this phrase, you don't practice what you preach? It's hypocrisy. You claim to know God, but your life does not reflect it. Okay, so many of these curse psalms are directed at people who are unfaithful believers. These people that are obstinate, their heels are dug in. They know what to do. They even say they do it, but their lives don't reflect it. They know full well the evil that they're doing. They know full well the sin that they're committing. They know the destruction they're bringing to God's people, yet they continue to do it. It's almost always directed at unfaithful believers and not unbelievers. And the last feature is this. The imprecatory psalms are fulfilled in Jesus, who was judged and is the judge. And we're going to wrap up with our time together uh, unpacking that statement. That's five features. Just so you know, I had like 15 of them in my notes this week, but these are the, these are the big five. Um, this doesn't completely solve the tension, I understand that, but it gives you some principles, give you some, some foundation on which you can stand as we address these. All that being said, Psalm 69, um, this is a long psalm. It's some 36 verses, so we're not going to read the entire thing, but what I want to do is just give a brief overview. We're going to read certain sections, especially the imprecatory sections, uh, because that's what we're focusing on today. But let's, let's read the first five verses. Uh, psalm 69, it's a psalm of David, and you'll notice that this actually reads somewhat like a lament psalm. We looked at the psalm of lament, Psalm 6, last week. Um, so the first five verses says this, 
Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. And jump down to verse eight. David closes his introductory lament by saying, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. David brings his burden to God. In verse four, we understand that David was hated without a cause. Some of you know what this feels like. Some of you, after being married for so many years, it's like your spouse all of a sudden just something breaks and your relationship is is tense all of a sudden and there's this frustration and there's this disconnect. And you're just wondering, what, what was the cause here? Maybe it's a coworker in your life. You're like, I, I do nothing but treat this person with respect and sure, we don't have the same opinions, but it's like this person is just out to get me and I don't know why. You're hated without a cause. David was hated without a cause. His friends abandoned him, his family abandon him. The people in his service have turned on him and now they are seeking to quite literally destroy him. Yet he understands he's hated, but he's, he's still humble. In verse five, in the midst of his lament, he approaches God humbly. He says, God, you know my folly. This is the king of Israel approaching God and saying, God, you know that I'm nothing more than a sinful fool. You know that I'm not perfect. You know that I've broken your law. He approaches God humbly. He admits his sin. He says, the wrongs I've done, they're, they're not hidden from you. And lastly, to give you some context of the situation, David's opponents, the ones that are seeking his life, they're his friends. They're his family. They're professing believers. They're Israelites. That's what we see in verse eight. David says, I've become a stranger to my brothers. I'm an alien, an otherworldly being, as if to my mother's sons. David brings his burden to God. This is a response to serious injustice. These are people that have turned on him, abandoned him, and are seeking to destroy him. Verses 9 through 12, we see the, the focus of this psalm. Before we get to the curses, the imprecatory section, um, we see that God's name is at stake. Here's what he says, verse 9 specifically, for zeal or strong emotion and passion, Zeal for your house has consumed me, David says, and the reproaches of those who reproach me or despise me, or that despise you have fallen on, on me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You need to know that Israel's kings were like a representative of God on the earth. This is how God appointed the kingship. You can read about it in the second Psalm, Psalm 2 how the king of Israel was an extension of God's rule on the earth, an expression of God's rule on the earth. David is God's representative in the world. It's kind of like uh, we all have last names. And if someone attacks your first name, they're just attacking you personally. But if they say, I can't stand the Seltzer, my last name, household, 
Um, I'm representative of my family by using that last name. It's like David is, in a sense, carrying God's last name, and he's representing God to the people of the world on earth. And so David's suffering unjustly is God's representative. And he says, zeal for your house consumes me. In other words, he's saying, look, yeah, people are despising me. People are rejecting me. But ultimately, God, I'm concerned for your name. I'm concerned for your reputation. I'm concerned for your house. Zeal, strong emotion, passion has consumed me. Because people are not just attacking me. They're attacking your name. These are professing believers, God. You know them. And they're making a mockery of your house. They're making a mockery of your name, of your glory. Zeal for your house has consumed me. The focus is not on David. It's not, it's not personal. Ultimately, the focus is, it's corporate. It's, it's, it's God. God, your zeal for your house, your glory has consumed me. God's name is at stake, and he knows this. Verses 13 through 21, David prays for deliverance. It's a long prayer of deliverance. reads like a lament. And then in verses 22 through 28, um, this is where we get to the curse section, the imprecatory section. Let's, let's read this together. David prays this way. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp become a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. They persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And then he takes seven verses to close in prayer and praise over his enemies. That's heavy. That's weighty. It's as if what we're reading in the Psalms is completely in contradiction to what Jesus told us to think, do, and how to act. You need to know there's not a contradiction, but there is some tension we need to address. I uh, want to wrap up our time together by looking at a few ways how Christians should view the imprecatory Psalms. First thing you need to know is this. The New Testament quotes the imprecatory Psalms. In fact, Psalm 69, the psalm that we just read, is quoted some four times in the New Testament. Here's why this is important. We are New Testament Christians. We are under the law of love according to the New Testament. We are uh, servants of Christ's covenant, the new covenant. And you need to know that the New Testament authors, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, quoted Psalm 69, and they were not critical of these psalms. They were not embarrassed of these curses. They instead used them. Here are a few ways they used them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, Psalm 69, verse 25 is quoted, may their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Okay, these are the disciples of Jesus speaking in context, Acts chapter one, about Judas, Judas Iscariot. How many of you are familiar with, with Judas? Judas was a disciple of Jesus. He was covert. He followed Jesus with his feet, but he didn't honor him with his heart. Ultimately, it was 30 pieces of silver. 
a few hundred US dollars today. That's all it took for Judas to betray his master, his rabbi, his teacher, Jesus. And ultimately, Judas is the one that sold Jesus to be crucified, murder. That's Judas. And so the New Testament authors, the apostles that spent time with Judas, quote Psalm 69, 25. They say, man, may his camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in his tents. They're saying, man, this man is cursed. He is for giving up Jesus to be crucified falsely. And they quote Psalm 69. They see Psalm 69 being fulfilled in the betrayal of Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 11, verses 22 through 23 of Psalm 69 are quoted. This is the Apostle Paul. And in context here, he's talking about the Jews, the Israelites who are rejecting Jesus. And Paul quotes Psalm 69 And he says, these Jews, their eyes are darkened so they cannot see. The reason the Jews rejected Jesus, Paul says, is because their eyes have been darkened. He's saying they're already under a curse. They're cursed for rejecting God's way of salvation. This isn't a popular teaching, but it's a biblical teaching. Another way this psalm is quoted is actually attributed to Jesus' suffering on the cross, some of his last words from the cross. Psalm 69, verse 21. In fact, some of you might recognize this. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This is attributed to Jesus, who when he was on the cross, we were told that the Roman soldiers gave him sour wine. They gave him vinegar when he said, I thirst. David wrote this, saying, my enemies are trying to poison me and kill me. And so what does he do in response? He curses them. But it's interesting that we have Jesus, who is of the line of David, Matthew 1.1 says. Jesus, when he receives this sour wine, no, he doesn't curse the people. What does he do? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus blesses his enemies. He doesn't curse them. Second way Christians should view the imprecatory psalms is this. Imprecatory psalms are part of the prayer book and they should be prayed. Some of you are like, whoa, should they really be prayed? Yes, with a few caveats, a few principles. Here's what you need to know. The psalms engage our emotions, not just the good emotions. I mean the the emotions of, of anger and rage and frustration. Not all of the Psalms are children's books, uh, children's literature. No, um, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. Have you ever looked out into the world and you've seen some injustice? I know if you've watched the news cycle for the last two months, you've seen some sort of injustice. It just angers you. It frustrates you. You feel like David saying, God, where are you, God? How long will you allow this to happen? The Psalms engage our emotions, even the angry ones. It's outrage at injustice and at the unjust in the world. It's okay to process your emotions that way. But you need to know this as well. Imprecatory Psalms are not prayers for personal revenge. We talked about that a few moments ago. 
Their prayer is to process our outrage at sin. Let me tell you this, nothing angers God more than sin. It is contrary to his very nature. It outrages him to see his people transgressing and sinning against him. The psalmist understood this. We should understand this. It's good to process our outrage at sin in the world. You'll see a rather large quote behind me. Um, It's from a German theologian who lived during Nazi Germany. He was hanged three weeks before the Allies liberated uh, the concentration camp by personal command of Hitler himself. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he comments on the imprecatory Psalms because as you can imagine, living in Nazi Germany, he felt some anger, he felt some outrage. He saw some injustice. And this is a principle for reading and praying the imprecatory Psalms. Follow along with me. Bonhoeffer writes this, can we then pray the imprecatory Psalms? Insofar as we are sinners and express evil thoughts in a prayer of vengeance, we dare not do so. But insofar as Christ is in us, the Christ who took all the vengeance of God on himself, who met God's vengeance in our stead, in our place, who thus stricken by the wrath of God and in no other way could forgive his enemies, who himself suffered the wrath that his enemies might go free, we too, as members of this Christ, can pray these psalms through Jesus Christ from the heart of Jesus Christ. Here's what Bonhoeffer is saying. If we're praying these in our sinful nature for personal vengeance, you better not pray these psalms. But if you are praying these psalms, understanding that Jesus Christ was judged yet did not curse, and that Jesus Christ ultimately is the judge of all people, you can pray these psalms. You can pray these in Christ. Only Christ has perfect righteous outrage and anger at injustice and sin. There's no ill motive or intent in Jesus' prayers, and we can pray these in Christ. We end our prayers by saying what? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Pray these psalms in Christ. They are the prayer book of God's people and should be prayed. I want to conclude by giving you this third way Christians can view the imprecatory psalms. Jesus fulfills the imprecatory psalms. Jesus fulfills the imprecatory psalms. Here's how he does it. Jesus was both unjustly judged and he is the judge. Jesus was judged and he is the judge. Think about the life and work of Jesus for a moment. Jesus came under the law and he was rejected by his own. John chapter one says that Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not recognize him nor receive him. They rejected him. Okay, Jesus was falsely accused of treason against the Roman empire, blasphemy of the highest order. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day held a false trial You can read about in the later parts of the Gospel of Matthew, this false, uh, phony trial to get this religious zealot murdered. His name was Jesus. Jesus was killed. He was hanged on a cross. You need to know that Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed on the cross. Yet he forgave No one suffered more fully than Jesus, yet no one forgave more seriously than Jesus. 
Yeah, David's enemies were after him and he cursed them. Jesus' enemies nailed him to a cross and he blessed them. In fact, he interceded, he stood in the, in the gap for them, said, Father, forgive them. These, these enemies don't know what they're doing. They're crucifying the, the God of the universe. Jesus was judged. He became a curse, Galatians chapter three says, yet he did not curse. And lastly, Jesus, Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. John chapter five, Jesus says that the father judges no one, but the father has handed all judgment over to the son. That means that uh, at the end of all things, the day of the Lord, as scripture talks about it, every person, righteous and unrighteous, inside of Christ and apart from Christ will be judged according to our works. Who will you give an account to? You will give an account to the crucified, risen, ascended, and soon coming King of glory, Jesus Christ. Judgment has been handed to the Son. He will judge. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what the biblical teaching on judgment says. We judge no one because the son will judge everyone. We judge no one because the son will judge everyone. This is an unpopular teaching, but it's a biblical teaching. I don't write the mail, I deliver it. I'm responsible for showing you what is in the word. That's my burden before God. That's my responsibility before God. Here's the biblical teaching on judgment. All people outside of Christ are already cursed. Romans chapter 3, 10 uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter three, verse 10 says, cursed is everyone who attempts to uphold the law and fails to do so. We're under a curse for rejecting Jesus. We're under a curse for trying to live under God's law and we fail to do it. We fall short. We're awaiting judgment. Here's what you need to know. We don't curse people because they are already under the curse of God's judgment apart from Christ. We don't, Seek personal vengeance on people because vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. God is a good judge who will make right all that is wrong in the world. We leave the judgment to Christ. As we wrap up, know this. You can view the Bible either as a magnifying glass to see what's wrong in every other person around you or you can view it as a mirror an invitation to let the Holy Spirit discern your own heart and motives, a mirror or a magnifying glass. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter seven. You can either look at the log in someone else's eye or you can pay attention to the, uh, excuse me, the speck in someone else's eye or you can pay attention to the log that's in your own eye. I wanna invite you to consider this. And this is the essence of the gospel. We were once enemies of God. We were once cursed under the law we were condemned for rejecting Jesus. But we are now redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus who became a curse for us, who lived the life that we could not live, who died the death that we should have died because of sin and who rose again to give new life to all who will place their faith in him. Not only that, we are redeemed and we are commissioned. What are we commissioned to do? To go and make disciples, to love and serve our enemies, following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, knowing that Jesus will come again a second time to make right all that is wrong in the world. Jesus is the judge. We judge no one because Jesus 
will judge everyone. That's the essence of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your word is already blessed. Father, thank you that even the difficult portions of your word have the ability, the power, the authority to soften hearts and save sinners. God, we've looked at a difficult portion of scripture today. But Father, thank you that we have the perspective of the cross. And we look to Jesus who became a curse for us, hanged on the cursed tree, was given sour wine, was mocked, was accused falsely, had every reason to curse and judge. Yet he became the curse and blessed. Father, may we always consider the example, the work of our Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for your people in this moment that as we look out into the world, as we see the injustice, racism, oppression, sin, disease, brokenness, I thank you that you've given your people the prayer book. Thank you that you've given them your words to pray. Thank you that you teach us how to pray when we feel this righteous anger at the sin in the world. Would you teach us to pray humbly? And would you teach us to pray only in Christ? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.